Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You are listening to the sound of universal compassion. Today, we will continue listen to Tangent's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3, or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with three dollars worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box eight two one four six Highland Park, Howick, Auckland, or you can phone zero nine two seven one three three seven seven. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more to Dharma over the radio waves. We're following the Buddhist teachings as instructed by the ancient Indian master Shantideva in his text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. I'm generally using the Stephen Batchelor translation of this as it is supposedly close to the original, if not as beautifully expressed as other translations. In our last program, we completed the seventh chapter of the text, the chapter on enthusiasm. And how to cultivate it. In his introduction to the next chapter, which is on concentration, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that enthusiasm is the primary cause for meditative concentration. As we will see, and as you probably know, you have to be pretty focused on avoiding distractions and keeping the mind on the task to develop concentration. We're not talking here just about the ordinary concentration that we routinely might use to get something done, but in particular what is called single-pointed concentration. That is the ability to place the mind on an object and keep it there undistracted as long as we need to. It is very difficult to achieve this in the midst of our busy day-to-day activities, so we need to create the right conditions and then practice for a long time. With lots of enthusiasm, as His Holiness says, our job is to prolong the period of maintaining the focus on an object, and that is done through deliberate practice. For example, with the practices of faith and compassion, we see that through habituation, we can prolong the period of these practices and also make them spontaneous and powerful. Similarly, with wisdom, the same thing happens. If we reflect more. Investigate more about the subject; the understanding we achieve will be stronger. If this is the case with such mental qualities, it will be so with single-pointedness. The more we habituate ourselves with staying focused, with a mind on one object, the greater becomes our mental stability, maintaining a single-pointedness. And so Shanti Deva begins the chapter with this verse: Having developed enthusiasm in this way. I should place my mind in concentration, for the person whose mind is distracted dwells between the fangs of disturbing conceptions. The six perfections practiced by a bodhisattva to an enlightenment are generosity, morality, 
patience, enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom in that order. Of course, it doesn't mean that when we are practicing one, we completely neglect the others. While our main practice as neophytes may be generosity, for instance, we will still do what we can to develop the other perfections. However, when we have perfected generosity in our mind, our main practice will probably then become perfecting morality, and so on. Therefore, in this initial verse, Shantideva points to the development of concentration once we've made great strides in attaining enthusiasm. He points out once again that if we are not in control of our minds, it is very easy for afflictive emotions to pounce and take us over in an instant. He uses a fanged image for the afflictions because no matter how convinced we are that they will bring us satisfaction, like ravenous wild beasts, they are always ready to tear us to bits. In the next verse, he stresses that the best way to avoid distractions and so the afflictions is to isolate ourselves. He says, But through solitude of body and mind, no distractions will occur. Therefore, I should forsake the worldly life and completely discard distorted conceptions. In his commentary on this verse, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that forsaking the worldly life means we have to give up being infatuated with worldly pleasures and trying to benefit those close to us while harming or ignoring those we don't like. And the distorted conceptions primarily refer to attachment and craving. Of course, it is best if we want to develop mental single-pointedness to go into retreat not disturbed by others, especially our partners, relatives and friends. In such a situation, we can really isolate both our body and mind and focus wholeheartedly on gaining mental stability. However, it's not always easy to take long periods of time away from the lives we've constructed for ourselves and our various responsibilities. But even while doing the things that we normally do day by day, we can start weaning our mind away from reliance on worldly activities and emotional entanglements with others. We can at at least spend a brief period or two every day sitting in meditative quietude to develop single-pointedness. You might now ask why we need to do this. What is the purpose of developing mental stability? I will let His Holiness explain, but now before we go any further, let's set our motivation for the program as we usually do. If you can... Please direct any positive energy from this program to gaining enlightenment to best benefit all beings. Or if you can't take on such a vast intent right now, at least think of your own enlightenment and freedom from all dissatisfaction and suffering. Thank you. Now back to the question why we need mental stability. When we generate a sense of love and compassion, it is often not long-lasting says His Holiness. A sense of hatred and aversion can interrupt our virtuous thoughts immediately. What is lacking here is meditative concentration, the power to concentrate, the power to maintain a particular mind for a long period of time. That, of course, is meditative concentration. His Holiness goes on to say that it is important to realize that in general, meditative concentration is neutral. In itself, It is neither positive nor negative. It is also not unique to Buddhists. Other religions, like Hinduism, for instance, also also practice meditative concentration. 
Ultimately, what we are aiming for in this practice is the concentration commonly known as calm abiding, or shamata. That is being able to focus on an object without any physical or mental discomfort for as long as you want, even weeks, months or years. Usually, calm abiding is coupled with vipassana, or special insight, again a quality shared with non-Buddhists. The difference between Buddhists and non-Buddhists is the object taken to focus on to develop these qualities, because both can be developed in all kinds, with all kinds of objects, conventional and non-conventional. But we'll come back to this a little later. In her commentary, Pema Chodron writes that here it is helpful to keep in mind two things to be abandoned and one to be cultivated. The two we have to give up are useless distractions that just waste our lives and getting drawn in by disturbing conceptions. If you want an example of what she's talking about, think of an ardent sports fan, say a rugby fanatic for instance, seeing as rugby may be, as many Kiwis say, New Zealand's religion. The focus of such a person's mind is rugby, and he or she will talk about it whenever they can, watch rugby videos as much as possible, and religiously go to the games of their favourite team. When their side wins, they get totally drunk and may well do stupid things they later regret. But when their side loses, they often get aggressive and drunkenly take their disappointment out in fights or beating up their partner, spouse or children. And this is hardly a rare example of what happens in the more macho sector of New Zealand culture. From a Buddhist point of view, choosing to take a game like rugby as a central pillar of your life is just throwing that life away, while also giving in to the emotional turmoil and drinking culture of the game leads to immense suffering, both for oneself and others. Now this, you might think, is a pretty extreme example, but even more genteel attachments will have similar, if perhaps not such blatant results. Well-known writers, for example, can be pretty vicious with each other, both verbally and physically. You can hardly say Gore Vidal and Norma Mailer were genteel, but they're a good example of two writers who had a famously bad relationship. Legend has it that Mailer punched Vidal to the floor at a party after Vidal had written a bad review of his work. And while on the floor, Vidal sneered, once again, words fail Norman Mailer. However, I'm sure we can find many instances in our own lives of people, ourselves included, giving in to pointless distractions and the disturbing conceptions. However, when we see deeply how meaningless these distractions are and how much damage the afflictions can cause, we can develop what Pema Chodron calls a nausea with cyclic existence. When Shantideva writes about forsaking the worldly life, she maintains, he is in fact talking about freeing ourselves from distractions and doing our best to avoid being hooked by afflictive emotions. The more deeply we realize how much difficulty we put ourselves through by getting emotionally tangled up, that nausea becomes like an ache in the heart that never goes away, says Pema Chodron. She points out that in this verse, Shantideva is not making some kind of ultimate statement about life. He's saying that for our minds to become stable, we have to remove ourselves from distractions, at least for short periods. We may not be able to completely give up our job and family, 
but from time to time we can set aside periods to go into retreat and learn to focus our minds. As Pema Chodron says, outer solitude is a support for inner solitude. We can't kid ourselves, she says. If we never take a break from our busy lives, it's going to be extremely difficult to tame our minds. This is why it's recommended to take time every day to meditate. Even short periods of sitting silently with ourselves allows the mind to settle. Longer periods are even better. Then in the next two verses, Shantideva writes, Worldly life is not forsaken because of attachment to people and due to craving for material gain and the like. Therefore I should entirely forsake these things. For this is the way in which the wise behave. Having understood that disturbing conceptions are completely overcome by superior insight endowed with calm abiding, first of all I should search for calm abiding. This is achieved through the genuine joy of these unattached to worldly life. This points to what His Holiness says about the primary afflictions being attachment and craving. When we can't give up our attachment to partners, family, relatives and friends, and when the main aim of our life's work is material comfort, we can only be described as worldly people. Even though we mouth the words of the refuge verses every day and attend the occasional religious ceremony, we cannot call ourselves Buddhists in any real sense. We must at least have the serious intention to give, us, to give up such attachments and aims and then work towards the time when we can finally be free of them. Otherwise, it will never happen. Unless we consciously put an end to it, samsaric work never ends. We might say, I'll just finish this project, pay this mortgage, put my children through school and university, then I'll settle down and practice the Dharma. But then, as one project comes to an end, another will, without fail, rear up and demand our attention. Unless we make a conscious and determined effort to turn away and avoid more involvement in worldly activities, it will never stop. So Shantideva recommends that we entirely forsake these things, following on the examples of the wise, the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and Arahats, who have shown that this giving up is the only way to achieve liberation. The Buddha explained that to get to liberation, we have to eliminate the disturbing conceptions through a combination of calm abiding and special insight. With a fully focused mind, we analyze the nature of reality and that brings us to a point where ignorance is completely dispelled and its delusions no longer can have any influence on us at all. His Holiness the Dalai Lama explains how this works. In exploring the sequence of which to achieve first, calm abiding or special insight, let's look into the nature of special insight, he says. Special insight is not merely the mental factor analyzing something, but rather the analytical factor complemented by bliss derived from bodily and mental pliancy. On top of your analysis, Whenever you achieve a physical and mental bliss, you've achieved special insight. To achieve that, you must first have achieved the physical and mental bliss of calm abiding. So the sequence is calm abiding first, and after that, special insight. They are not distinguished on the basis of their objects, His Holiness says. Both can be focused on many kinds of objects. 
carbabiding can be focused on both conventional and ultimate reality, and so can special insight. They are differentiated on the mental state, the first by the power to maintain a single-pointed concentration, and the second on the power to analyze while meditating single-pointedly. His Holiness goes on, We have said that these two qualities are shared with non-Buddhists, who try to overcome the afflictions by means of meditating on the gross and subtle qualities of the different realms. They view the lower realms, for example the desire realm, as gross and full of faults, and the upper realms, like the first concentration of the form realm, as subtle and pure. They do that by means of both calm abiding and special insight, and eventually achieve a higher mindset and the respective results. From the Buddhist perspective, at best using this technique will conquer the afflictions temporarily. But when forceful conditions arise, the afflictions will once again become manifest. So, from the Buddhist perspective, to cut the afflictions altogether, you have to understand their root cause, and that is ignorance. Therefore, unless you can eradicate ignorance, there's no way to eradicate the afflictions altogether. Because of this, from Buddhist perspective, rather than employing mundane calm abiding and special insight, one should employ transcendental or supramundane special insight and calm abiding. What is that? It is the calm abiding and special insight focused on emptiness, understanding the nature of things and events. Through this, you gradually overcome the afflictions. Of the two types of afflictions, intellectually acquired and innate, you first overcome the intellectually acquired afflictions. These are required when through study and contemplation of different tenets and philosophy, you take something as not distorted. It is true, thereby strengthening the afflictions. You overcome these first, and then gradually you overcome the innate afflictions. This is how Buddhists overcome the afflictions. Now to make this a little more clear, His Holiness is describing two types of afflictions, what he calls the intellectually acquired afflictions and the innate afflictions. We develop the intellectually acquired afflictions through study and contemplation of various tenets and ethical systems, and then choosing the system that most appeals to us. We may, of course, also take on intellectually acquired afflictions just through cultural accretion, environment, and so on. For instance, although the writer C.S. Lewis was born into into a family of the Church of Ireland, he became an atheist in his teens when he studied authors such as Lucretius. However, later, at the age of 33, after reading the works of the novelist and Christian minister George MacDonald, and after long discussions with his friend J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame, he converted to the Anglican Church and remained an Orthodox Anglican for the rest of his life. From a Buddhist point of view, both his slide into atheism and his conversion back to Christianity involve intellectually acquired afflictions through study and contemplation. He could have stayed and identified as a member of the Church of Ireland by default, and then his intellectually acquired afflictions would have come through cultural accretion and his environment. The innate afflictions are those that we come into the world with and are not brought about by study, contemplation or choice. They are based on the wrong view of the nature of reality, particularly on the view that we and the phenomena we experience exist independently and inherently. For instance, when you look at yourself in the mirror every morning, 
You believe that you are the same person as you saw there yesterday. That is why you get a fright when you see another grey hair. But that concept is directly at odds with the reality in which things and people are changing instant by instant and are dependent entirely on other things. They have no inherent or independent existence and the today's image reveals a completely different being from yesterday's. However, from our grasping at a wrong view, our innate ignorance of the nature of reality, we develop attachment, aversion, especially to grey hairs, and so on, the innate afflictions. So these are the two types of affliction His Holiness is talking about. Now let's continue with Shantideva who says, Because of the obsession one transient being has for other transient beings, he will not see his loved beloved ones again for many thousands of lives. His Holiness says we can replace the word transient here with suffering and also selfless. We are transient because we have no home. We move from one life to the next endlessly. And no matter what we establish in one life, we have to leave it behind and start all over again in another. However, we are so used to trying to stabilize ourselves, especially with the help of a soulmate or soulmates, that we allow ourselves to become infatuated with others. They, unfortunately, do not have the power to be a stabilizing force. And so when we and they go on to other lives, as we must, we have to say goodbye and probably not see each other again for many, many eons. And when we do, we will not recognize each other. Our suffering comes from our attachment for others. So we can equally say that as long as we allow such attachment to rule our lives, we will be cursed with more suffering when we have to necessarily bid those we adore au revoir. We can also say that transient implies ever-changing. From one life to another, we change bodies and our consciousnesses also do not remain the same. If I were to be born as a donkey in my next life, how much of that donkey will be Tenzin? Would it act like Tenzin? Would it sound like Tenzin? Would it think like Tenzin? Some basic behavior might be similar, but if you searched the donkey, you would be unable to come up with anything that you could point to and say, that used to be Tenzin, apart from the continuity. And yet you cannot say that the donkey is entirely distinct from being Tenzin. Like the nature of one candle flame lit from another, this is one of the anomalies that causes headaches as we try to understand what the Buddha meant by selflessness. Shantideva goes on, Not seeing them, I am unhappy, and my mind cannot be settled in equipoise. Even if I see them, there's no satisfaction, and as before, I'm tormented by craving. As Pema Children says, when we brief and ephemeral beings cling to things that are equally impermanent, it is a setup for dissatisfaction. She writes, Since impermanence defies our attempts to hold on to anything, outer pleasures can never bring lasting joy. Even when we manage to get short-term gratification, it doesn't heal our longing for happiness. It only enhances our craving. As Zigar Kontrol once said, trying to find lasting happiness from relationships or possessions is like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. And Shantideva goes on, Through being attached to living beings, I am completely obscured from the perfect reality. My disillusion with cyclic existence perishes, and in the end I am tortured by sorrow. 
by thinking only of them, this life will pass without any meaning. Furthermore, impermanent friends and relatives will even destroy the Dharma, which leads to permanent liberation. The more we depend for our happiness and satisfaction on impermanent beings, the more difficult it becomes for us to understand how things actually exist. Our attachment may cloud our mind so much that we may even start to think that cyclic existence isn't such a bad deal after all. I'm put in mind of the Eric Clapton song, Wonderful Tonight, which you probably know. I'm sorry, I can't sing it for you. You would be appalled at my tone deafness. But the lyrics go like this. It's late in the evening. She's wondering what clothes to wear. She'll put on her makeup and brush her long blonde hair. Then she asks me, do I look all right? And I say, yes, you look wonderful tonight. We go to a party and everyone turns to see this beautiful lady that's walking around with me. Then she asks me, do you feel all right? And I say, yes, I feel wonderful tonight. I feel wonderful because I see the love light in your eyes. And the wonder of it all is that you just don't realize how much I love you. It's time to go home now and I've got an aching head. So I give her the car keys and she helps me to bed. And then I tell her as I turn out the light, I say, my darling, you were wonderful tonight. Oh, my darling, you were wonderful tonight. And doesn't that make you feel all warm and gooey inside? Being with his lady makes the world seem right for the singer. And caught up in the song and the emotion, we tend to assume this relationship will be all happy ever after. That's our dream, isn't it? That our relationships will end up happily ever after. But the reality is always somewhat different. The lady will grow old and her beauty will disappear. She may fall out of love with the singer and go off with someone else. Or he might. And even if they stay together, one will eventually die and at least one will be left grieving. This is the nature of impermanence, the nature of samsara. The title of the song implies it all. It's wonderful tonight, but that's no guarantee that it will be wonderful tomorrow or the next day. Yet, while the relationship lasts, the world will seem, if not consistently wonderful, at least worthwhile even to the point that when the relationship does end, the singer will undoubtedly start looking for another beautiful woman to make his nights wonderful. Thus life passes, as Shantideva says, without meaning. For instead of freeing ourselves from the source of our suffering, the attached mind blind to the nature of reality, we drink ever more deeply from it and completely lose whatever understanding of the Dharma we had. Of course, with Eric Clapton's example, I'm taking the most extreme form of attachment, romantic love. But as Shantideva implies, our attachment can be unlimited, extending to friends, relatives and anyone that appears pleasing to us, even a spiritual friend. Pema Chodron points out that when we allow such endless attachment and craving for other beings to dominate us, we become blinded to the real unbiased nature of mind. And so any disillusion we had with cyclic existence melts away. Remember, earlier on she spoke about cultivating a nausea with getting hooked by the afflictions. Now she says, nausea with doing the same thing over and over is called wholesome disillusion because it motivates us to break our habits. 
By contrast, ordinary disillusionment is ego-based disgust. I don't like this. I don't like that. That keeps our habits well entrenched. Shanti Davis says that when seeking security in outer things clouds our perception of the fleeting, uncertain nature of reality, our longing to wake up may well evaporate. Then sooner or later it is too late to wake up because we are tortured by sorrow. In other words, we die. Even hundreds of years later, we can easily understand when Shanti Davis says, by thinking only of them, we are always thinking of others, loved ones, family, and the people we like and dislike. We fritter away whole lifetimes, preoccupied with these objects of our craving and disdain. Meanwhile, impermanent friends and relatives will fade and pass away, leaving us sadly with a well-entrenched craving habit. Sadder still, we may have lost our passion for liberation in the process. And on that note, we must say goodbye for time is up. Thank you for joining the program today and I hope you'll be with us again next week. Please dedicate any positive energy from the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you and have a very happy week. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering. Ah.